Now we've got company, so Carolyn and Searsha can't stay today. Next time, though. Oh. Next time. I thought we maybe would have one or two more. Oh, there. Nope. Oh, no, sorry. Carolyn. <laughs> Uh, okay. Wayne, you were at last week, so I'll give these to you so you have them okay. for posterity. Uh, some of that's going to be review for you, and some of it isn't. And then, of course, there's a schedule. Uh, eventually, you're going to need Bibles and you're going to need hymnals, so those are all in here. Uh, for the rest of the time that we're meeting, I don't think we're going to have ever more than five or six people at a time probably, so we'll fit in here uh, very comfortably, and it's nicer than being in the Fellowship Hall or Sanctuary, and uh, we'll always have some coffee and treats for you too, so <laughs> there's at least one reason to come. <laughs> oh, oh dear. Okay, well, let us, uh, let us pray. Stir up our hearts, O Lord, to make ready the way of your only begotten Son, that by his coming we may be enabled to serve you with pure minds. Through the same Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, so we're going to do just a little bit of review. Uh, because, I'm going to move that up here, uh, because the way that this class goes uh, is that it goes very quickly and I throw a lot of information at you and uh, because it's all supposed to connect in sort of a holistic way, uh, there's not a great way to transition from lesson to lesson. So where we left off uh, was essentially the introduction for today, which is that raccoon handout. You remember, the raccoon's dead in the road. It's got the balloon that says, get well soon. And the joke is, if he could get well soon, he would, but he's dead, he so he can't. Um, and that's you. You are the raccoon. You're in the middle. They're setting up for potluck. Yeah, so you're dead in the middle of the road. The Greek word there is necros. It's an advanced stage of death. Uh, where we get the word necrotic, where the flesh begins to rot away and rigor mortis has already set in. At that point, uh, there's really no hope ever of, uh, of, of resuscitation for the individual or the raccoon. Uh, and that's sort of the whole point of Christianity uh, is to say, listen, you know, you're really not as great as you think you are. Uh, you're dead. You're flat as a pancake in the middle of the road oozing juice and you don't get to decide that you're gonna hop up and rise from the dead. You don't get to decide to ask Jesus into your life. Uh, Jesus isn't gonna wait for an invitation. He's just gonna raise you from the dead. Uh, remember there's that great quote from last time from that uh, Anglican or Episcopalian priest. There's a lot of bad you can say about the Episcopalians, a lot. Uh, but, you know, even the blind squirrel finds the acorn, and that's just a great quote, that Jesus comes to raise the dead, and the only qualifications then to receive the gifts that Jesus offers is that you are dead. Uh, you don't have to be great, you don't have to be powerful or smart or anything else. 
all you have to do is be dead. And uh, that's really easy to do because you already are. And to tie that then in with the teachings of the Lutheran Church, if you think of the small catechism, the third article of the creed, you cannot by your own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ. Right. You can't believe. You can't raise yourself from the dead. You can't even believe. So my question is, if, you, if you're dead to the point, as St. Paul says, they're not my words, they're St. Paul. If you have a problem with that, you've got to take it up with him. Uh, if you're dead, you can't raise yourself from the dead. If you are dead, you can't believe. So how are you then going to say, well, Jesus needs to wait for me to extend him the invitation to raise me from the dead. Well, you can't. How, how is it that you're going to say, I need to wait until I have the appropriate faith to invite Jesus into my heart when the very source of your life and faith is the Christ who will do it to you? If, if you wait it, and decide that it's going to be on you, you're going to stay dead in the middle of the road. Because you can't do it yourself. You can't uh, grab the paddles and shock yourself while you're dead on the slab. It has to be done to you. Uh, so, what do you need? Well, you need the touch of Christ. And if you come to adult Bible class regularly enough, you know that the touch of Christ is essentially shorthand for the gospel. And I want to make that clear. Uh, as we go through this class, you're going to realize that theology is not really all that complicated. Uh, I have a pastor friend who even wrote his dissertation on uh, the faith in five words or less. That if you can't take lofty theological terms and condense them into something that's as simple as five words or less, you're really not worth your salt as a theologian. Uh, so you have to be able to do that. Uh, the theology and being a theologian is not something that's reserved for the lofty philosophical minds. It's actually reserved for all of the minds and hearts of the faithful. So what is the gospel? Uh, the gospel is the touch of Jesus. And it comes in many forms, many facets of what this touch of Jesus is. But all of them are the gospel. Jesus coming to you to put his touch on you. So the gospel is always something that is active. And it's always something that is active upon you and for you. Which is why faith has to be passive always. Because faith is what's going to receive that which is being done. It's not the active thing that decides it's going to ask for something to be done. Uh, so what you have to understand is the answer to the question, what is the gospel, is not a, it's not the Sunday school answer, Jesus. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Jesus is not the gospel. But the gospel is the touch of Jesus because the touch of Jesus is how Jesus is delivered. And that's how he's chosen to be delivered for you. Uh, which is why we say Christians ought to be in church uh, because this is where Jesus is here for you. Uh, saying that you want to be a Christian but then not go to church is like saying two things. Firstly, it's like saying, well, I know that I need water to survive but I'm never going to go to the drinking fountain or to the sink to receive water because water's in the air around me. I'll just take it with me wherever I go. It doesn't really work. Yeah, it's around you everywhere, but there are specific places where it's there for you. The other thing that you're saying is, 
well, you know, I love Jesus and I'm going to follow him, just not in any of the places that he goes. Well, then are you really following Jesus? Are you really going to the places where Jesus wants you to go? And we'll talk a little bit about that. So uh, what do you need then? This is the big thing. You're, you're dead. You need to be made alive. Jesus comes to raise the dead, and you are the dead. So if that is the case, then following the flow of that logic, you who are dead need what Jesus comes to give, resurrection. You need life. Remember, that's the only thing Scripture ever tells you. That's the whole story is death and resurrection. That's your story because it's Jesus' story. So where does that begin? begins at baptism. That's the one thing that I tried to convince you of last week. That you are dead, and that when you come to the church, through the waters of baptism, you are made alive. That's the foundation for everything that happens here. Everything in the liturgy. Yes? You would, you would say, we are dead in our sin. Mm-hmm. Certainly. I just like to say dead. Period. Okay. Dead, period. Okay. Now, certainly, uh, you can, if you believe, uh, for example, um, infant baptism, we believe that the in, an infant has the capacity for faith. That's fine and dandy. The sick person has the capacity to believe and understand that going to the hospital is where they're going to receive treatment. It doesn't negate the fact that the sick person still has to be admitted to the hospital. You can know something and understand it and believe that that's what it's going to do for you and want it, as you should, but doing it, believing it doesn't make you alive. Having it done to you is what makes you alive. Uh, but the thing is, when you hear the words of the gospel, when you hear the preaching, when that word of God that comes to you externally, even in utero, works on you, you can't help but want the things that it promises you. Well, baptism is the thing and that I've, been, I've heard a lot about, and in that baptism, I know that I've been promised these things. Well, I want those things. Okay, well, then come to baptism. It's like Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Can't read the scriptures. I don't understand these. A pastor comes and explains the scriptures. The, the, the scriptures are opened to him. It's all about Christ. The preaching of the gospel is all about Jesus and the gifts that Jesus brings. He hears about the touch of Jesus and he sees a mud puddle. This is enough of, we'll talk more about baptism by immersion later, but this is enough of a proof to show that that's not necessary because Luke makes a point about saying, and they were in the desert. Well, what's one of the characteristics of the desert? Dry. Dry, there's no water. And they're on a road, a dusty dirt road in the middle of the desert. And he says, hey, look, there's some water. It's a mud puddle. There's a mud puddle in the road. There's a little bit of water. What's stopping us from being baptized? And Philip says, well, nothing. Do you believe that this is what it's going to do for you? Yes, do you believe on Jesus? Oh, I certainly do. Well, yeah. Come on over. Jesus is going to do something for you. You believe and you want that which Jesus comes to bring. So you need resurrection from the dead. So, uh, continuing this story of death and resurrection, where death and resurrection begins, I have these over here because I kind of want to keep them secret. Two, four. Where death and resurrection begins is at the font, the baptismal font. Uh, so, this handout, this is, um, thanks. 
this is two things. Uh, first of all, it's a, well, I guess secondly, there at the bottom, it's a commentary on the text that we're going to look at in just a second here. But um, the top is what's important for us. This is uh, sort of a, a diagram. I apologize for the low quality here. But this is a diagram of what a baptismal font looked like in the early church. For, what's the first thing that you notice about it? Circular. Okay. Um, well, it's not exactly circular. Quasi-circular. Yeah. Uh, if you had to boil down the shape of that font to one thing, what do you think it looks the most like? Cross. Yeah, exactly. So the, these early baptismal fonts often are, more often than not, are in the shape of a cross. But the, uh, the thing that you need to look at that is the most important is one of the two cross sections because there are stairs. And you can see uh, this cutaway view here. Uh, there are stairs that go down and then stairs that come up. The baptismal font is one way. You don't go down the stairs and then turn around and come back out the same side. You go in one side and you come out the other side. Why? Because it's death and resurrection. The early church baptized, so the baptistry is what the little area where baptism took place was called. That was off to the side at the very entrance to the church. Sounds a little bit like having the baptismal font at the very entrance of the nave. Because in order to get into the church, you have to come through the water. In order to get to the promised land from the land of death and bondage, Egypt, you have to go through water to get there. So you go through this water one way, and what they would do is you'd be baptized in total darkness. You'd be naked. You'd walk into the water. They baptized. They did it by immersion because it was like the drowning and the dying. When we'll talk a little bit more about that, baptism is a violent thing. And then they come out the other side and they'd be clothed with a white garment and then they'd be taken into the church where everyone from the congregation would be waiting to have the service of the Eucharist. And they'd have lights and candles and you'd be going from darkness into light. You go through the water, through death and resurrection, clothed with the white robe of righteousness and into the assembly of believers that are there to receive the body and the blood. Uh, so it's cross-shaped, it's cruciform, but the, the point of this is that there's death and that there's resurrection in the model of the baptismal font. You know, everything in the church is supposed to preach, uh, at least in... in the place of worship in the sanctuary. Everything that is there ought to be there for a reason. Any decisions about color, about uh, placement, about the style of things, everything is uh, a preaching decision because all of those things are to point you in one direction and that is to Christ. Um, so you see in the early church, they had that understanding. And we're not gonna look quite yet at this bottom bit because we're gonna look at Romans 6. Uh, so Romans 6 really is where we are driving, um, starting last week, going and uh, talking about um, Paul saying, hey, don't you know that you're dead? 
uh, don't you know that you're dead? So we'll look at Romans 6 and see what St. Paul has to say here. Romans chapter 6, we'll start at verse 3. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? So the first thing you should know is, and I don't, these, uh, these copies are the ESV. I'm using New King James. I don't know exactly how that begins there, but the, the point of this, do you not know? Uh, put a positive spin on that. The phrase really says, hey, Everybody knows this. Everyone knows that you're dead. Everyone knows that as many of us as were baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Everyone knows this. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, we also should walk in newness of life. Okay? Um, this is really important, and I want to talk a little bit about the language. Um, so the language you can see sort of right here, the correlation between Christ and uh, the baptismal life there. Again, I apologize for the poor quality of this image. I didn't make it, but I really liked it. And probably the next go-around here, I'll make my own and improve this. But, of course, everything is on Christ. Christ dies, he's buried, he's resurrected. Well, that's what baptism is. You're joined to Christ. You have an old life, you die with Christ, you're buried with Christ, and you're raised. This is what Paul is talking about. This is what uh, baptism is. It's death. So remember, uh, basically, where we ended last week is this. The place where life begins is death. The solution to the problem of you being squished flat as a pancake and puffy in the middle of the road is that if you die before you die, you don't die when you die. So life begins with death. Uh, the, uh, baptism is then the uh, death to self. It is the death to sin, it is the death to the power of the devil, and we'll take a little bit of time at our next meeting, which will be in January, uh, to, to go through the baptismal rite and get down to the nitty-gritty of why baptism is the way it is in this church. Uh, but it's the death to the devil. There's an exorcism that begins baptism. Hey, there's a reason for that. And it's the death even of death. Uh, so, in this death, of all these things, is also the beginning of life. Death and resurrection is the story of Scripture because it's the story of Jesus. And because it's the story of Jesus, it's also the story of you. Because you go where Jesus goes. That's what this means. And we'll talk a little bit about that in a second. Um, so, I have another uh, handout. Um, but before I pass this one out, because this is, I'm really proud of this one. Uh, we're going to have fun with it. But before I pass that out, we need to look back at verse 3. We're going to go through the, uh, a lot of these verses here in Romans with a fine-tooth comb because it's really important. This, is, this informs the teaching of the church. Um, 
Do you not know? Everybody knows. As many of us as were baptized. What do you notice about that verb? Were baptized. Now we have, see, for the next uh, little bit here, probably 10, 15 minutes, however long it takes us to do this and go through this next handout, you have to have your grammarian hat on. So you think back to English class. What kind of verb is this? Were meaning past. Okay. Yeah, yeah that's what I would say. We were. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. What is the, uh, to whom is the action directed? Who is the subject of the verb? Yeah. Okay. Who is the actor? That's the big question. Yeah. Uh, All of us who were baptized, okay. baptized into Christ. Is it an active verb or is it a passive verb? It's passive. It's a passive verb. Okay. You are not the ones who do the baptizing. You are the ones who are baptized into Christ. Which means that there's some external force that's coming to you. I'll give you a hint. It's the touch of Jesus that's coming to you and doing it to you. Putting the touch of Jesus upon you. The, the motion of the church always uh, is from God to you. So baptism is not your act. It's God's act to you. That's why I don't care about whether or not you make a decision for Christ. Couldn't care any less about that because I already know that Jesus has made a decision for you. It's all about what Christ is going to do for you. Uh, the passive verb is always the verb of faith. The active verb is the verb where you are performing the action, but the passive verb is where you are the recipient of an action performed. And this is important. You are baptized into Christ. So the idea of a believer, excuse me, a believer baptism, in some ways, believer baptism is an oxymoron. Are you really a true believer until you're baptized? No, you can, you can, understand what baptism is going to give you. You can desire in a certain degree of faith what that is, but you're not brought into the church. You're still sort of dead, wanting to be made alive, but unable to make yourself alive. The idea is a misnomer. That goes back to the eunuch again. Exactly. goes back to the eunuch. Yeah. The eunuch doesn't say, hey, here's some water. Hold on and let me hop out and do this. He says, what's stopping me from being baptized? The, the Ethiopian eunuch narrative is a great one for understanding, uh, well, in some ways, the office of the ministry and its relation to the church. He's struggling to understand the texts of Scripture, so what does he do? Well, he has to have it preached to him. Even pastors need to have the word preached to them. It's tough being a pastor sometimes because you're always the one that's preaching, and you try and make sure that the first person you preach to is yourself, but it's difficult. Sometimes pastors need to go and be parishioners. A pastor always needs a pastor. Any pastor who doesn't have a pastor himself is not worth his salt and he's not a good pastor. Any pastor who hears confessions but doesn't confess to another pastor who absolves his sins isn't, you shouldn't hear confession, or he shouldn't be hearing confession. You shouldn't confess to someone who doesn't confess themselves. Okay? So everybody needs a pastor because the, the word of God is preached to you and it works upon you. In some sense, this is why when you do your daily devotions, you shouldn't sit and do it quietly. You should read it out loud. 
because the word that you're reading is going to come out of your mouth and it's going to hit your ears and you're going to be hearing the thing that you're reading and it's going to affect you differently. If you haven't already started doing that, doing devotions out loud, reading the text out loud, I encourage you to do it because you'll notice a difference. Yeah. <clears throat> to quote, to be the devil's advocate here, did the eunuch, some people would say the eunuch made that choice. Sure. Okay, he made the choice. He asked to be baptized, but what had to happen first? Yeah, had to be touched. Yeah, yeah. yeah. The word of God has to work on you. You can't, yeah. you have to know that you're dead. If you don't know that you're dead, then who cares? Yeah. But the word of God preaches to you. It starts that flame of faith, and the Holy Spirit is always going to direct you where? Jesus. To Christ, yeah. yeah. That's the Holy Spirit's job. If, if the Holy Spirit is doing anything other than directing you to all of the places where Jesus is, then it's not the Holy Spirit. Well, a friend of mine uh, tried to uh, tell me, he says, his son found God in church one Sunday morning. Mm -hmm. and, and I said, I think God found him because the act of him, uh, the, the spirit working on him, had to put him in church. How, how did he get there to start with? God came to him and opened his heart to the idea that he could find Jesus in the church. Mm -hmm. so, so when the guy says, well, he found he found Jesus in the church that Sunday morning. God put him in, in the church on Sunday morning. Sure. I mean, you can say that. But to play devil's advocate to you, there are many people who can go to church with no desire to hear or receive the word and who leave going, well, that was a load of baloney. I was here because Grandma said I needed to be in church on Christmas Eve and I'm only here to fill a seat. And you can go there and... True. Reject, reject the word. Yeah, not everybody that comes so, to church believes. Right, but the the word of God is there, and it's mm -hmm. it's always the word. You know, the word is living and active. It's always going to it's always going to be hammering. Mm -hmm. And uh, but this the the whole th bit about the Ethiopian eunuch is that he's trying to read the scripture. He's reading Isaiah, mm -hmm. and the joy of that text is you don't fully understand, well, what's Isaiah talking about here? And when Philip starts to preach to him, it says he opened up that scripture and the entire Old Testament to him about Christ. So he takes all of the Old Testament and he says, now listen, you're looking at this all the wrong way. It's all about Jesus. And he tells him all the things about what Jesus does and is. And we can look at that text in, uh, later to go into more depth there. But looking at that Isaiah text and that the first response of the eunuch is, Here's a little mud puddle. Can you take some of that dirty water and put it on me and baptize me? Because I want that. That he hears a text from Isaiah that looks like it has nothing to do with baptism. And his first response is, I want to be baptized. That should tell you something about the scriptures and about the word of God and what the touch of Jesus does. So uh, it's a passive verb. Something that's being done to you, not the other way around. Uh, and it's, it's not the pastor doing it either. You know, uh, St. John... Chrysostom says that when, when the priest turns 
And when he holds up uh, the body and the blood and when he places it into your mouth, puts it upon your tongue, it is not the priest who does it. It is Christ the Lord himself who does it. This is why pastor puts on vestments. It's not because he wants to look fancy. It's because I want you not to look at me. Because I want you, when you see this person, I want you not to look at my face. I want you to be, I want me, myself to be a foreigner to you. And I want the only thing that you see to be Christ. When I have my back to you, the back of that chasuble has a big old cross on it. It's in the color of the liturgical year because the liturgical year is all centered around Christ. So you look at the color and the first thing you think of is, oh, we're in this season where we're doing this about Christ or this about Christ or this about Christ and there's a big old cross. And I turn around and there's a crucifix above me and I love it because it's angled slightly down. It's angled toward the altar where he is and it's angled down toward you. You, there's a big crucifix right there, and there's a big crucifix right here. You're not looking at me. I don't matter. It's not me who's <clears throat> absolving your sins. It's not me who's giving you the body and the blood. It's not me who's performing a baptism. It's Christ our Lord himself who is there with his touch, doing it to you through the office of the ministry, through the steward of the mysteries that he has raised up and placed into that office. It's all about Christ doing it to you and for you. Now, here's the next thing. I'm so excited about this. I didn't even have this planned until this morning. I was in here early getting stuff ready and I thought, hey, you know what? It was a spur of the moment thing. The Holy Spirit works in mysterious ways. And I'll explain this a little bit, okay? So let's look ahead here in Romans. We have been baptized but we still in Yeah, in verse 3 there. Yeah. Into his death. Now here's some grammar. I did this uh, in Bible class, but I'm going to do it here again. Okay? I'm going to go here to the door. Right now I am in. Right now I am out. Right now I am in. Right now I am out. Where am I now? Coming into. Coming into. into from the, yeah. yeah. So grammatically speaking then, here's the thing. Uh, can I come in? No. I can come into. Because into is motion. In is static. If I'm in, I'm in, and I'm here. If I'm out, I'm out, and I'm there. But if I'm in too, there's the motion of me being out and moving in. In too is transitional. You are between out and you are between in, but you are going in. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is motion now. You are baptized into Christ. There is motion. Think of this death to resurrection. There's always motion. There's always progression from one to the other. Movement. Yes, it's movement. So you're not in the same place that you were. In baptism, Christ picks you up and he puts you someplace else. And baptism is the point at which you have been picked up and are moving into that new place where he's going to set you down. Are you following me? Mm -hmm. 
Okay, that's where this little diagram comes in. Uh, Luther says, love the languages like you love the church. Uh, so, you know, this is why pastors study the languages at the seminary and why they ought to continue studying the languages even after they've graduated. Because the language of scripture is very important. Often, the smallest things like well, this says into, not in. Something like even as small as what preposition is used changes the complete meaning of the text. Here's the motion. This, adventura con leon. This is, uh, Bill, this is what you overheard me talking to Carolyn about. This is from a Greek primer from the late 1800s written for children. And it's, it was embarrassing. Now, I've, I'm familiar with these. There's a whole list of illustrations uh, about the adventures with the lion. It's a little boy and his adventures with the lion. And there are pictures, and then it just describes it in the Greek, and it's about the Greek prepositions. And the pictures show you what the sentence says. And uh, I, when I was studying beginning Greek in college, my TA introduced me to this and I love it and I've saved this and I've used, I use it all the time. I love the little boy and the lion. But it was embarrassing because I realized that this from the late 1800s was a children's primer. And uh, Adventura con Leon is not Greek, it's Latin. So the title of the book and all of the instructions in the book are written in Latin teaching you Greek. So the expectation is that the children who are learning to speak Greek, the children who are learning Greek, already know and understand Latin, which is humbling and embarrassing. <laughs> because I certainly didn't already know Latin going into learning Greek when I was in college, uh, or at the seminary. <laughs> so where would they have learned Latin? In school. Latin and Greek were were the languages they taught in school. And, uh, you know, look, just kind of, not to be a commentary on the societal standing now, but we've come a long way from teaching Latin and Greek and German and all those other languages in school and having all these things. But all that's by the by. The reason for this is because I want to show you that there's a difference between the word ace in Greek and the word en. Ace is into, N is in. So let's look at this first one, number 11 in the series, and I have the translations down at the bottom for you. Ace ton leonta, into the lion. Well, you see, what's happening? <laughs> Little boy's being swallowed up. Now, is the act of swallowing something up a stationary act for what is being swallowed? No. There's movement. It goes in the mouth and it moves down. It goes into. The next one is en to leonti, in the lion. Well, where is the little boy now? In the lion. Now he's stationary. There's no movement there. He's just there. But ace into is the motion from one place to another. So, when we talk about baptism as being movement into the death of Christ, again, you have to see it like this, 
Not only does Jesus have you right here doing something to you, he's also grabbing you by the scruff of your neck, picking you up, and moving you to a different place so that once that baptism is over, you are irrevocably moved from where you were into the place where now you are. Uh, so there's a change that takes place. Uh, there's change. This is why baptism is death in a sense. It's the death of the old life and you're now raised into a new life. So uh, when St. Paul talks about those who are in Christ, in Christ is just shorthand for the person who has been baptized. When you are being baptized, you are being taken into Christ. And once you are baptized, you are now in Christ. You're stationary in Christ. That doesn't mean you live a stationary life, but it does mean that now you're in a new place. And uh, when you are in Christ, this is one of the gifts that baptism bestows, he is as close to you as your own skin. Why? Because, in a sense, he is your skin. If you think about that, uh, you know, you're clothed in Christ, Galatians 3.27. Don't you know, again, hey, everybody knows this. Come on, guys. Everybody knows that when you're baptized, if you are in Christ, you are those who have put on Christ. Christ is as close to you as your own skin because he is your new skin. Christ clothes you with his righteousness. That's why when you come up out of the water of that baptismal font and they lead you in, you are clothed in the white robe. So baptism is resurrection. It is new life. You're not where you were before. You're someplace new. And the baptism, the act of baptism, that thing that goes on is the movement from one to the other. Um, so because it's resurrection then, we use the number eight a lot. Number eight is the number of resurrection. The baptismal font has how many sides? Eight. Eight sides. Eight is the number of rebirth. What is the day that Jesus rises from the dead? Well, it's the third day, but what day of the week is it? It's the eighth day of the week. Why isn't it just the first day after goes from seven to one, that's how we do it, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, one, because nothing like that has ever happened before. Jesus ushers in something new. In Jesus, there's a new day, the day of resurrection, the eighth day. And the eighth day, the number eight at the font, uh, ties you into that, the day of resurrection. Uh, that when Christ comes again, you're going to be living eternally on the eighth day, the day that will never end. Eternity is the eighth day. Now, bet you have never thought of this. The other place where there are eight sides is the altar. The altar also has eight sides. It's a, a cube. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. Eight sides in a cube. That is the other place where the day of resurrection is tied in because that is the place where the flesh of Christ is. So here's the deal about baptism. What you get at the font, new life, forgiveness of sins, salvation, entry into the kingdom, all of that is nourished at the altar. The two are inseparable. They go together. 
That's why the first thing that happened when you were baptized in the early church, you walk up out of that water and then you walk into the assembly and everybody has the Eucharist together. Because what is received at the font is nourished at the altar. So, uh, here's the thing. If you think about the church as you ought in terms of a hospital, you know, the church is a hospital for saints, not a country or a, a hospital for sinners, not a country club for saints. You're not here to pal around and say, well, look at how great I am. Everybody outside of those doors, boy, they're going to have a hard time when Jesus comes back. No, you're, you're here to receive your treatment. Baptism is you going in there to the front lobby and having somebody slap a bracelet on your wrist, put you in a wheelchair, and take you into the room where the doctor's going to come in and give you your treatment. You're admitted to the hospital. You're now in the community where you're going to be receiving your treatment. And the Eucharist is the medicine that you're getting. That's your shot. That's your vaccination. That's your inoculation. It's the chemotherapy that comes in and completely kills everything that continues to grow within your corrupted body and will. That's why we can talk about the Eucharist like the little bomb that comes in and blows away your sins because it's like that chemotherapy that ravages away that uh, aggressive disease that eats away at you. But it's the most effective of all chemotherapy because it hurts the sin, but it doesn't hurt the body. In fact, it improves the body. So uh, you're in the hospital now, but when you're in the hospital, you've got to have your medicine. The other thing that baptism will do, and we'll, you know, next time we'll get into the nitty-gritty of all this. This is sort of your introduction to what the things that baptism is going to do. Because next time we have to answer the question, how can baptism do such great things? Uh, <laughs> you, if you know your catechism, you recognize that. Yes. You have to talk about why it works that way and how it does it. But for today, it's enough for us to say that it does. So the other thing that it's going to do is it'll regenerate your will. Uh, when you're baptized, you can choose to love. When you're baptized, you can choose to seek after holy things and to shun evil things. You can strive to do that. You can fight against sin and the powers of this present darkness. Uh, you can live differently, and you ought uh, I, I love this. Jesus, uh, he's, he's a demanding master, but he's only demanding um, in the sense that he's like the father and the mother that love you and tell you, hey, listen, uh, we want you home before dark, and uh, we want you to uh, be here on time. We want you not to get into trouble uh, because these are the things that are good for you. That's what Jesus is like. Hey, listen, I'm going to give you a curfew. I'm going to give you some rules, not because I hate you, but actually because I love you, uh, and I want you to live, and these are the gifts, and this is the place where the gifts are, and I want you keep, to keep coming back. I want to be able to keep giving you this because I know how good it is for you. I want you to keep getting your medicine. Uh, so these are some of the things that the that baptism then does. This is why it's so important. In essence, it raises the dead. It gives you new life. But if you are living a new life, then living active, continual aspect, you don't live once, you are living. It's a con the sense is continual. 
uh, that when you are ripped out of that old place, baptized into Christ and put into the new place, once you're in that new place, you keep on living like you're in that new place. The active uh, verb again. It's the active verb, yeah. To be a Christian is to be active in the new life. You, don't, you would have been active in the old life. You would have been active in death. But now you're active in life, which means you live a little bit differently. Uh, and why? Well, because Jesus does. Because, St. Paul, you're baptized into Christ, into his death. Uh, so in verse 5, for if we have been united together, again, if we have been united, which is again passive, you are made to be united. You don't make the decision. If we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Death and resurrection. Where life begins is in death. You have to die first before you can live. If you die before you die, you don't die when you die. You see how this works. Uh, but the thing is, when you die to self, how are you made alive? You're baptized into Christ. So that Christ is your life. So you're joined to him inseparably. We might, like I said before, he's as close to you as your skin. That's more than saying, hey, you're never going to be alone again. Which is true. You're never going to be alone again once you've been baptized because Christ is always with you and you're baptized into the community that is his body. So you have the saints of God all around you, always with you, and Jesus is always with you too. You'll never be alone or unloved ever again. But it's also more than that. It's more than that. Where Jesus goes and what Jesus does, you do. Why? Because you're joined to him. So Jesus' story is your story. That's why I said that. Death and resurrection is the story of scripture because it's the story of Jesus. And because it's the story of Jesus, it's also the story of you. Because when you're baptized into him, when Christ puts himself on you, you when you are placed into that new life that is the life of Christ, when he dies, you die, baptized into his death, when he rises, you rise, baptized into his life. Where he goes, you go. When he suffers, you suffer. Now those are the, you know, when he suffers, you suffer. That's the, the part that we maybe balk at. Well, why would I want that? Well, the other thing is this. If Jesus rises, so you'll also rise. You go with him wherever he goes. He goes into the kingdom, you go into the kingdom. Jesus is indestructible. You are indestructible. Death Jesus is a hard pill for death to swallow, and in fact, death can't keep him down. Jesus is Jonah in the belly of that great fish. The fish can't keep him down, and he's vomited up on the shore. That's what Jesus is. Death swallows him up thinking he's finally gotten himself the best meal that he can take, and he can't keep him down. And not only can he not keep Jesus down, now that he's swallowed him, he can't keep down any of the other saints that he's swallowed. They're all vomited up upon the shores of heaven. Uh, okay, so baptism then, you know, this is the gospel. This is the touch of Jesus. Uh, when the pastor puts the name of God on you, when you're baptized, that seal is on you forever. And of course, you know, it's not the pastor. Christ comes to you and puts his hand on you 
writes his name on you, inscribes it into you. Uh, so then, we're running out of time, like we do. <laughs> Exodus is where I want to look next. Exodus. Exodus chapter 3. We're going to jump around a little bit. So you can follow me if you'd like, or you can just listen. Exodus 3, 13 through 15. Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, when God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, the Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. God has a name, an eternal name. Uh, this is it. I am. I am. You are because I am. No one else is because I alone am. I'm God. They're not. You're not. This is what this is all about. So then we have to jump to Numbers chapter 6. What's in a name? Power is in a name. So the name of God. Well, now we know God has a name. But Numbers chapter 6, here at the end of that chapter, 22 through 27, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons. There are, who are Aaron and his sons? What's their role? They're the priests. Mm-hmm. They are the priests. Hey, they're the ones that speak my words. I put my, my words into their mouths and they will speak the words. The pastors. This is the way you shall bless the children. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. What does this mean? So they shall put my name on the children of Israel. And I will bless them. God owns you in baptism. You're moved from the camp of death into the camp of life, and the camp of life is God's camp. He stamps you with his name, or better put, he brands you. People talk about baptism as the holy tattoo, which it is, but I like branding better because there's a certain element of violence in that. You, when you brand cattle, it's in there. It's a mark on your flesh that is permanent, even more permanent than a tattoo. You're branded with the sign of that cross, with the name of Christ. Second Chronicles, I know we're rushing through this, so if you have, if you have questions, just go ahead and stop me. Yeah, Second Chronicles chapter 7, 13 through 16 here. This is all about the temple, okay? When I shut up heaven and therefore there is no rain or command the locusts to devour the land or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, oh, second commandment now, look at this, you have power in the name, uh, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal the land. Now my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to the prayer made in this place. What is this place? The temple. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever. 
and my eyes and ears uh, and heart be there perpetually, okay? Well, that's fine and dandy, you know, the sanctuary is the house of the Lord, but here's the deal. Surely in temples made with hands, God the Most High is not dwelling. When Jesus comes in your flesh, the temple loses a great deal of importance. Why? Because there's a new temple. Christ is the new temple because the temple is the place where the fullness of God is found. And now it's not found in the Ark of the Covenant anymore. Well, it is in the, the new Ark of the Covenant that is the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And then from that Ark, the presence of God in all of its fullness erupts forth in a baby, in the flesh of man. And now you are brought into the flesh of Christ even as he has taken on your flesh. You're in him. Do you not know that your bodies... Yeah, again, hey, hey guys, come on. Everybody knows your body is a temple of the Lord. And your body, the temple of the Lord, the place in which the Lord dwells, even as you dwell in his temple, dwelling in Christ, his name is there. His name is on you. There's the power. Where his name is, there his ear is, there his heart is, there his word is forever. There his presence is. And then in Revelation, chapter 7, okay, this is 1 through 8, but I'm not going to read all of this just for time. Okay. Uh, do not harm the earth or the sea, this is verse 3, or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our gods. Where? On their foreheads. Hey, receive the sign of the cross both upon your forehead and upon your heart. Where is baptism? Well, it's on your forehead. There you are sealed. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written on their foreheads. You're stamped. You are branded. You are the Lord's. He owns you now. Wherever the gospel gets on you, or excuse me, whenever the gospel gets on you, when the touch of Jesus comes to you, it marks you and you belong to God. This is the Roman sacramentum, the mark of the Roman soldier. You'd get a tattoo and you'd go out into battle and you'd know who your buddies were because they had the same tattoo as you. You know your buddies. You're in this pack because you bear the sacramentum of the Lord. Now the flip side of that is, who else knows who you are by the mark that you bear? The devil. the devil knows too, but do you have to be afraid of the devil? No, he's been kicked out of you, he's been killed, and you're in the victorious camp. You still fight a battle, but it's not a losing battle, because you know what the outcome is. You know, you've read the end of the book, okay? Okay, what's the significance of the 144,000? Okay, take off the thousand part. What's the significance of 144? 12 times 12. 12 times 12. Okay, how many tribes of Israel? 12. How many apostles? 12. 12. It's the fullness of Israel. The fullness of the people of Israel times 12. Old Testament, New Testament. The 
children of the Old Testament church, the Jews, and the New Testament church, the ministry to the Gentiles, it's everyone together. The thousand is just amplified to the ends of the earth. It's not... You're kind of blowing the Jehovah's Witnesses out of the water there. Yeah, well, you should hear me talk about John 1.1. 1, 1. <laughs> uh, so one last place in Revelation that we're going to look here. Uh, 22. Revelation 22, 1 through 5. Uh, in the middle of his... I just need to get to the one place. There shall be no more curse. The throne of God and all the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be upon their foreheads. Okay, where is that? Revelation 22. Verse 3. Uh, yeah, verse 3 and 4. So here you go. Okay? So this is the sign of the cross now. So uh, the mark of God, the sacramentum, the sign of the cross. So here's the question. Is it too Catholic to make the sign of the cross? No. I love it when people say, that's too, we can't do that, that's too Catholic. You want to know why? Because then you can respond like this. Oh, too Catholic. What, you mean like pews and Bibles? Mm -hmm. <laughs> too Catholic. I don't even know what that means. The other question you can always say is, this, okay, oh, I'm sorry that it's too Catholic. Can you tell me what it is to be Lutheran then? Well, no. Where you? Yeah, it's a, you can't tell me what it is to be Lutheran. You just can tell me what it is not to be Catholic. Okay, well, that's no way to go around about life, folks. It's no way to go about especially the life of the church. You can never be defined by what you reject and by what you hate. The Christian faith means that you have to be defined only by that which you love and by that which you affirm. The, the, uh, the use of the, making the cross fall into disuse in the Lutheran church, because I think it's... It was too Catholic. Because yeah, I think it's... That's what the Roman Catholics do. So we can't do that. We need to be. We need to set ourselves apart from them because we hate them. Uh, so we're not going to do these things. And if you try and tell us we should do them, we're going to argue with you and tell you we can't because it's what the Catholics do. Oh, okay. But it's also what the Lutherans do. Mm -hmm. I mean, here I've got some some things to say about that. Cyprian of Carthage. Oh, in this sign of the cross is salvation to all who are marked on their foreheads. Whoa, let us not therefore, Cyril of Jerusalem from his catechetical lectures. Someday, someday, we're going to do a Bible class all on the catechetical lectures. Cyril of Jerusalem, it's his version of the catechumenate. He baptized his confirmants and then he said, Now, let me tell you what I just did to you and you're going to have to come with me. Let me tell you what this now means for you. We'll give you some catechetical lectures. And it's great, just the basics of the faith. Let us not, therefore, be ashamed of the cross of Christ, but even though another hides it, you ought openly to seal it on your brow, that the devils beholding that royal sign may flee far away, trembling. Make this sign when you eat and drink, sit down or lie down, rise up, speak and walk. In a word, make this sign on every occasion, for he who was here crucified is above in the heavens, meaning he's now victorious and you bear his mark. And when you bear the mark of the one who's victorious, everybody knows you're victorious too because you're baptized into him. Okay? And uh, let us not forget, you know, the wealth of the hymnal, of course, is that it contains just about everything that you need for a daily devotional life. It's not a book for the church service. It's convenient to have, but that's not what it's for. 
That's what we think it's for nowadays, but it, that's it's something that's changed. It's for you. It's for your home. Listen to this. Daily prayers, how the head of the family should teach his household to pray morning and evening. In the morning, when you get up, make the sign of the Holy Cross. Evening prayer, in the evening, when you go to bed, make the sign of the Holy Cross. Hey, it's okay for Lutherans to do that. You know, and, and here's sort of the way that we do it. You, know, you take your hand, three fingers here, two fingers down, three for the Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the baptismal name in which you were made and whose mark you trace that's been placed upon you, and the two fingers for the two natures of the Christ who has come to touch you and give you that mark. And the neat thing is, too, one finger goes above the other because there's the divine nature and the human nature. It's beautiful. This is also, this is the last handout, which I think that you've all seen. But the hand of blessing, okay? Uh, I'm weird. This is a weird place. People who come in, even, you know, even lifelong Lutherans, some of the stuff we do here, it's kind of weird. Like, why do I make this hand shape, this weird thing? Well, because I'm tracing the name of God that I'm putting upon you. Anytime there's absolution, well, there's the touch of Jesus. That's the name. Anytime uh, there's the benediction, here's this hand shape, because it's the name of God that's being traced on you. This, I'm, I am spelling out the name physically. It's the first and last letters. I C, uh, I C, excuse me, X C. Jesus Christus. It's the name of Jesus spelled out and traced upon you, the same name that's already there. And if you notice, I make the sign of the cross the opposite way that you cross yourselves. Most people are uh, top to bottom, right to left. When I make the sign of the cross, it's top to bottom, left to right. So that when you make the sign of the cross, it's tracing the very name that is being put on you by the Lord when he speaks the name. All of this stuff matters. Hey, the Advent wreath matters too. If you ever wondered why we don't just light it in a circle, it's back to front, left to right because it's tracing the sign of the cross, tracing the name of the Christ for whom we wait. <coughs> we trace the name of the Christ for whom we wait during Advent, the name of Christ that is put on you, the name into which you have been baptized. That's what every little place in the service where there's a little cross is an opportunity where you say, hey, this is where we're remembering a baptism. This is where the name of God is being used so you can make the sign of the cross on yourself, tracing that. It's in the, that's in the hymnal, if you didn't know that. And if you look at the, if you follow along, when I chant the verba, when there's the little cross, this is my body, there's the little cross right there. That's the point at which the, the name of God is being used, placed upon those things. You see this? This is also, by the way, why the baptismal font's at the rear, so that when you go in, you can dip your fingers in, you can remember that you go through water to come into the life of the church, that you go through the name of Jesus that's put on you, and on your way out, you put that name on you to preserve you and to remember it as you go through your week. One of the most beautiful things that you can see here is when the little kids go out and they splash around it and they sort of touch their foreheads and then they put it on their parents 
I love it. I love seeing that. All this stuff, you know, this is, uh, everything matters in the church. It's all about the name of Jesus, the person of Jesus into which you were baptized, the touch of Jesus that's being put upon you to raise you who were dead to life, to rip you out of your life of death, put you into the life of life that you can live in the life of Christ. This is what baptism is all about. And if you're following the schedule, this is the invocation. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's all about the name. And it's all about baptism. Question. You're very docile. I'm thinking. <laughs> <laughs> See, that's the problem. That's the problem is you get to thinking and then and then it takes another week of digestion. <laughs> that's so amazing. You know, here you have this infant baby and we believe in the baptism and then Jesus becomes already active in that little mm -hmm. baby's life. Now some, of course, some uh, denominations won't do that. Yeah, it's kind of... But we do the same thing. We, we renew our baptismal vows and catechism. Mm -hmm. Right? Well, yeah, I mean, confirmation, the whole name of confirmation is confirming the baptismal faith. Baptismal. That confirmation is... You know, the idea that confirmation was the benchmark about when you were ready intellectually to receive the Eucharist, that's never how it's been. That came about during the Enlightenment and rationalism and pietism in the Lutheran Church in the 1800s and into the 1900s. But confirmation historically is the point at which the Church says, hey, you were once a catechumen, a novice, but now you're an adult in the faith. Now you're a Christian. Now the faith of your baptism is your faith. Okay. And from this time forward, that's, that's been confirmed now. Hey, this is your faith, guys. So now keep coming back to be an adult in the church. This is, this is why the whole idea of Luther's catechism as the end all of the Christian faith is a little bit silly because... It, while it is important, it was written for five-year-olds and illiterate peasants. It's written for children. It's written for the novices of the faith. And then when you, when you are an adult in the faith, you're not a novice anymore. Now you're an adult in the faith. Now you start living like an adult in the faith, which means you keep coming back. You're, you've graduated from milk to solid food, but you have to come and keep eating. I think that one of the um, things in the church is that, that uh, somehow or another, the idea, which was never ever taught by a pastor or a priest in a pulpit, but somehow or another we've got the idea that once you are confirmed, you don't need to learn it. You've learned it all. You don't need to learn anymore. Oh, sure, yeah. It's graduation. Yeah. You know, and gosh, uh, I think back on confirmation, and, and I have... Uh, we had good, uh, we had good confirmation class, and we studied the, the Bible lessons. We studied the, the, the uh, 
the word of God. But as I look back on it, gosh, I didn't know anything. You know, yeah, I mean, really. just just barely opened the first page. You know, of, of what I've learned yeah. since. You know, uh-huh. and uh, and and I think you know people. Why did you become complacent about Sunday school, Bible class, adult confirmation classes? You know, because just because you were confirmed, you 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 just you can't imagine how much you don't know. Yeah. Uh... It's not graduation from the faith. It's graduation from being a beginner, an initiate, a novice, to being uh, an adult in the faith. But at the end of the day, you'll always be a student. It's not graduation from school. It's graduation from kindergarten to first grade. <laughs> yeah. So you're, you know, you're still uh, in need of instruction always for as long as you live. And that feeling that, boy, I didn't know anything. Until the day you die, you're going to feel like that. And that's the way it ought to be. To go back to uh, your references to Isaiah, uh, there's so much in Isaiah. I mean, it, I could listen to a sermon every day on a different part of Isaiah and learn from it, you know. just yeah. and, and to think, that was written before the time of Christ, but yet how it talks about Christ. How it, And you can kind of see... A little bit why Luther became so exasperated with the Jews because they couldn't see in Isaiah what the eunuch could. Mm -hmm. It's like in uh, so the Chronicles of Narnia, in the last book, the last battle, the children who believe in Aslan are rescued. They think they're being thrown in prison, but Aslan is there and he's rescued them. They're thrown into this barn and they're thrown in with, with the dwarves who don't believe in Aslan. So they're all in prison, what they think, and then they realize Aslan is there and he set a table for them. And they dine. There's a feast here. They realize we've been saved and they invite the dwarves. Hey, come and eat this supper with us. And the dwarves say, oh, this is dirty water and stale bread. And they say, no, it isn't. It's a feast. Open your eyes and see. And they say, no, it's dirty water. We're in prison. We're stuck here. We refuse to see. That's essentially what it is. That there's this wealth that's here and it stands right in front of you and still you say, nope, I'll look right at it and I won't see it. And uh, yeah, that is the exasperation. Well, Luther was a little bit naive uh, because he thought that, well, if the gospel is preached, and this wasn't just about the Jews. This is about, if you think what he said about the Jews was bad, read what he's written against the German people. Uh, he, he was naive because he thought that if the gospel were simply preached in all of its truth and purity, every single person who heard it would run to it. Yeah. And then they didn't. And he was angry because he thought, well, this is such a beautiful thing and look what you're rejecting. He also got mad at the Lutherans because they said, oh, you mean we're saved by grace? Great, so we don't need to go to confession ever again. We don't need to come to receive the body and the blood anymore. We don't even have to come to church because now we're saved by grace. Thank you, Martin. And he said, no, that's not the way this works. So uh, there was a lot of frustration. And in his early years, he was a little bit naive. He wrote some good stuff. But the expectations that he had about how things were going to work were not exactly the way, they were not met. 
um, though he was disillusioned by the end of his life. But anyway, questions? Anything else? Okay, there's a lot here to chew on for the next three weeks because we won't be back until January. But when we get back into January, we'll review a little bit about all this stuff that baptism does. And then we'll say, okay, how does it do it? How does this, how does this magic work? Uh, where does it come from? Why? And uh, who's it for? Why do we baptize babies? And you know, we'll look at the baptismal rite and we'll sort of break it apart. Why do we do the things we do in baptism? What, what, why does it matter? Because everything matters. Okay? Um, then let us close with the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Oh.